This is Paul Axton, along with Jason Rodenbeck. In this episode of Forging Plowshares, we discuss the problem with universalism. Please consider supporting our work by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash paulaxton. Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, I'm here with my good buddy, compadre and compatriot, (laughs) Jason, who has consented. It's my birthday, and my one birthday wish was that Jason talked to me, and he's consented to take time out of his busy day to have a conversation with me. (laughs) So all of my wishes are fulfilled. I've gotten my birthday present. So, and actually you came home early today. I just assumed it was on my my behalf. Um, you know, if it makes you feel good to think that, then I'm not going to try and burst that bubble purposefully, but I guess in a way I kind of just feel sorry for you that this is such a highlight for you apparently, unless you're pulling my leg in which <laughs> case I feel sorry for me. Well, so. it's kind of funny cuz we I we're in pretty constant communication because Jason does, basically he runs the uh, PBI portion of things. We rarely uh, get an opportunity to sit down and have a uh, conversation. So this is kind of a pleasant. Yeah, I think so too. I feel like as I'm getting older, making time for for these, it's just easier for me to kind of get lost in a daily shuffle of getting things done. And uh, I got to make more time for these kind of conversations. Uh, Are you saying less important things in your life? (laughs) Less important things in my life have taken a a bigger chunk of that time. That's that's what I mean. So if you're determined to read it differently, you can if you like. Uh, Well, I guess the occasion, you've been following and commenting on some of the stuff that we've put out on uh, universalism. Right. I put up one podcast at this point. Probably by the time I put this up, I will have put up the end of the conversation. Yeah. Let me lay out what I see happening and the tension. And then Jason will step in and resolve our our problems. <laughs> and that's why I consult him. Uh, so I told Vanjie, I said, I think Paul's getting into universalism and it's my job to go change his mind. <laughs> So uh, that's it. That's it. <laughs> okay, let's define the term. At some level, when I use the term universalism, and faith keeps saying you have to be more careful and you have to define the word, so I'm going to do that now. Mm-hmm. To my mind, the, the New Testament teaches universal salvation, and everyone believes that. In other words, there's no question. Well, everyone, that's too big a statement. I was going to say, uh, my mind just kind of blew up a little bit. Whoa. whoa, whoa. <laughs> so, yeah, faith's be careful warning. is uh, <laughs> that, That's actually the David Bentley Hart's way of doing things. He said, well, there's the idiots, and then there's the rest of us who believe yeah. the truth. Uh, no, that's not what I'm saying. That, in other words, that, that's one of my fears of, about reading him is that um, – since that's basically the way I feel, <laughs> too, um, that it's going to be end up being the 
when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. Um, <laughs> yeah, he, he does just make you feel morally and intellectually inferior should you happen not to agree with him. So that's right. The point with it is that there is a, a cosmic, all-inclusive presentation that creation itself is groaning in travail awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. Okay. That God's purpose is for universal salvation, meaning that, in other words, not Calvinism here, that, well, God just means to leave some out. So I think everybody, but nearly everybody other than Calvinists, or somebody who believes in a limit atonement, believes that the all there is at least intended for all people. Okay, that's that's step one. That in some way, so when I use the term, that's what I mean. Well, it's universal, but then obviously there are the qualifications. And there are whole lists of qualifications, you know, that that the judgment scenes and then the lists of the fornicators, the people that are not going to enter in or the people that are left in outer darkness or whatever that is. Right. I think a neat way of summing up what the New Testament teaches, everybody is saved, but some are not. <laughs> and they all believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You mean everybody but believes the, uh, nobody believes they're a part of the some or not. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So I, I think I'm, I think I'm with you. Okay. So there is the New Testament teaches universal salvation. Okay. And what we mean by that, and I'm willing to just sort of be hopeful in my understanding of the extent of that. I don't know to what extent that just applies to everyone. I mean, maybe when I was 18 years old and we were all sitting around shooting the bull as freshmen, you know, that we began to talk about the possibility of eternal torturous existence. And I think it takes about five minutes of thought, and you realize that that is too heavy of a future punishment, given that we are all finite, or get we have finite limitations. And I would say about Hart's book that he does a good job of, I think biblically, first of all, he does his New Testament translation. You could almost just read his translation of the New Testament. Right. And then his footnotes, and you get the idea, well, the notion of infernalism, as he calls it, or the idea of an eternal torturous existence, is certainly not required and probably excluded. At least it's not explicitly taught. And the development of that doctrine is a later addendum that's put on, and you can actually trace the beginnings of that. So that leaves you with annihilation. And annihilation, and that fits with, with many things, whatever annihilation might mean. In other words, the danger that was there in infernalism is that people were pictured as having innate immortality. I had a beloved professor when I was in Bible college who explained it. He said, well, you see that we're all a little piece of God. 
<sighs> and so that's the heresy. Yeah. Not is not necessarily not- attached, but I think it's often often attached to infernalism. So I think that well, I think you and I can agree that we can set aside first of all the notion of innate immortality of the soul. I just don't think that's biblical right. or that we're lo- or that we're inherently divine. The idea that is continually presented in the Old Testament in regard to death almost completely consistently in the Old Testament is the idea that when you die, you return to dust. In other words, it's not even clear that someone like Abraham believed in the survival of his individual existence, that his hope for survival was in Isaac. I'm not saying anything here that's out of court. I don't know anybody in academic circles that is now arguing for a Greek notion of innate immortality. I think most people recognize, oh, that's just paganism. Well, unfortunately, let me throw something at you there, though. And I'm sure you're right academically. I'm not uh, as sure that it isn't still on a popular level the basic assumption that most folks have. But when I say popular, I'm guessing that most folks would will hear something like that when they go to church on Easter Sunday. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pervasive. That, that that their soul is innately immortal, and that's they were created that way, and that can exist. So there's a lot of little bits and pieces I'm hearing here. I'm trying to make sure I'm I'm getting at them, but I thought it was important to stop there and point you that out. You just stop me anytime that you. you <laughs> Um, what else did I? Is everything else you're agreeing with? I, I'm not anywhere near as well read as oh, you. Oh, here it um, comes. Here, he's gonna. Uh, he's gonna on, on these issues. <laughs> no, it's it's not self pity. Um, I'm not, but and I haven't read Heart, um, and I, I think I even mentioned that yesterday or today in a, one of our email exchanges. My take on these things has been an almost logical set of conclusions that have been that have very naturally arisen from the changes in my understanding of things like atonement dualism and purpose what was god's purpose in creation and in in atonement that what happened for me is once i changed once i left penal substitution and some other forms of substitutionary atonement that language is not completely worthless, but uh, once I left penal substitution behind, and I was very influenced by William Hasker, his work on emergent dualism, and it it changed my understanding of what people are. Um, And it's one of the reasons why my theology in my writing um, has focused so much on an earthy kind of quality. I think you said that the other day, there's an earthiness about, about these pieces. Because I think that one of the things we read in the creation narrative, uh, that the assumption of the of these early Hebrews is that these bodies are good and that we were we were created as these bodies. So we don't live in them; we are them. And things like soul and spirit are not um, separate from these in a way where you can say they live in us or they're connected to us, but they. That what I've taken from Hasker is they emerge from us. Uh, we are physical bodies who have spirit, personhood, like like God. God is a person who is non-physical. Uh-huh. 
and um, we are physical persons. And that's what a soul is. It's a being. And so once that was, and that, let me be foreign to some folks, once that idea sort of made sense to me, then a lot of things couldn't make sense anymore. The idea of living outside of the body is, it's a nonsense kind of thing, which isn't to say that I don't understand how somebody could believe that, but it just, it so doesn't square with this understanding of God's creation of us as humans. And eternal hell, and, and for that matter, even a temporal hell uh-huh. is something that on the surface I can't imagine what that that looks like. How do non-physical beings who require a body, who are a body, exist in any kind of non-physical state? And assuming it is a physical state, I suppose you could that may be another conversation. Then there's also a piece, and it was in an article that uh, I read today on this issue about Hart's book, um, which isn't fair to only read critical things about the book, but it's somebody shared it and I read it. I think David Rawls shared it. But the the author of the article mentions that part of his critique is that Hart is forgetting about divine purpose for people. It's all about metaphysics and not about what God's will was for people. If you run back to the creation narrative, there's the moment when God says, okay, Adam, you're going to name the animals. And of course, this is uh, uh, these are all symbolic ideas. Uh, but what I've drawn from that is that he's saying people part participate in godlike activity by if if creation was a speech act then they participate in that creation by mimicking that that's part of being the image of god and we speak we name what is and so that is part of that creative process and the article says if you understand creation that way that that's god's desires for us to be participating in continual creation of this world. Now, where that goes wrong is Adam and Eve in the story. Uh, there's sin, there's destruction, there's death. God doesn't start killing people, now there's death. His whole act of restoration throughout uh, the Old Testament is to instate a people who will live out the kind of created order that he intended with a, a view to inviting all people to participate in that. And that's not fulfilled until Jesus. When my atonement theology changed and said, okay, it's not about God needed to kill somebody in order to to get us to go to heaven. It was about Jesus calling us to follow him in living out the intent of God's creation, us in this creation. Then it's a much fuller view of what salvation is. And it's an invitation to the cross. So cross-bearing in a world that's antithetical in its values to the values of God, um, cross-bearing is living out salvation. So part of my discomfort about the whole conversation about universalism is we always talk about be saved, be saved, be saved, and it's always just this future thing that's going to happen out in the the nether and instead salvation is working out the restoration of this creation now in this sort of first fruits if we're going to run back to romans 8 in these first fruits as we await this final restoration and i think that's why in paul's letter he says if we have um, suffered with him 
then we have that to look forward to. We will be raised with them. So there's uh, the the piece that I think is missing that, or one piece, is to be responsive to that call to live this cross-shaped life because we are on board with this idea, because we've decided to be on board with the idea. And I know free will gets kind of sticky in there, according to Hart and what I've read um, and some of our conversations that we've had as you've said those things to me. So let me see if the point that you're making is that Hart and those who, in a form of universalism, first of all, that they are putting the impetus upon the will of God and the idea that God, you know, the whole point of it is that God created and his presence is available. But what you're saying, the missing piece is, is that, yes, but humans also then were co-participants in the creation. And there was a dignity that was given to human beings that is not simply tied up in human will. In other words, it's that dignity is not of necessity tied to the notion of free will, but just the idea as co-participants in creation that there would be some finality or there would be some real world value, how do you put it, that would be given to their creative or not capacities. Yeah, I think Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews, when it looks back at the call of Israel out of Egypt, and I, I've actually said this little thing a lot. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of hokey, I suppose. But the goal when God goes in to liberate the Israelites in the story of of Exodus from Egypt, there's a whole lot that happens here where they they leave Egypt after a, a great conflict. And he's leading them through the desert as a people, and they have all these failures. And immediately, one of the first failures is they immediately start into idolatry when they're at Mount Sinai. And that sort of is a constant. I think that that's what we see throughout the history of Israel and, and into the later parts of the Old Testament. They're always wrestling with falling into idolatry. But what happens, the writer of Hebrews says, no, you need to stay faithful to what you've been called to in Christ, because remember how the Israelites didn't all come into Israel because they were not faithful. So there's a point which he said, look, uh, you guys, this this generation's not getting it because they were in Egypt so long, I'm having a hard time getting Egypt out of them. It wasn't just that that he was trying to give. The whole thing isn't just that we have a nice place to live. That's from Israel, and it's also for us. It's not he didn't create us so that he could give us all a nice place to live. He created this world as a physical temple. I get that right out of John Walton. The, the creation narrative is a cosmic temple narrative, right? I think N.T. Wright's done a lot of stuff with that too. That it is here to reflect uh, something about him. I can I can agree with Hart about that. But it's not an extension of him. It's separate from him. And we have a part in that. He didn't create us because he wanted to give us a nice place to live. He created us for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to participate in this creation with him. Now, I get that will is fallen will and all that, but it is still will. 
And one of the things that I think is is vital to maintain is that when Jesus calls us to the gospel, the fallen will looks at the, the message of the gospel and says, look, that's just crazy. You don't get places. You don't make changes. You don't fix things by dying on crosses. You fix things by putting other people on crosses. You, don't, you, you pick up a sword and you fight. That's fallen will. That's fallen mind saying, this is how things work. That's how power works. Well, again, Paul in, in 1 Corinthians says, no, no, look, the real power is what everybody thinks is foolish. So what you have to do for that to make sense is say, okay, well, I'm going to accept it. Who's the one that accept it the fastest? It's the ones for whom these power structures have failed the hardest. It's the ones at the bottom of these rungs. They're the ones who are most likely to say, yeah, this place doesn't work out. It's unjust. It's wrong. That sounds better. And so it's it's always in the New Testament, who is it that we're really struggling? It's, it's the powers that rely on mm-hmm. this kind of power. So there's an emptying that happens, but once you make that switch and say, I'm going to trust that Jesus is right, even though there are parts of me that go, I just don't think that makes sense, suddenly the gospel starts making sense. And suddenly it's everything else seems upside down. The concepts of power seem upside down. What I couldn't get around in our conversation the other day is, is I commented on the, on the blog article, these thoughts string here. It seems to me that to say that God will save everyone means that at some point he's overwhelming that will, that he's taken away that ability to say, I'm on board with that. One of the ironies of it, I, I feel like I hear people say, well, a God that would torture people for eternity is is an evil God. I agree with that. But we can believe that he'll torture people until they give him what he wants. That seems like just as sick of a God to me. For me, it makes sense to say that folks who just can't get on board with it, they experience what sin has brought, and that is death. I mean, we all experience death. But for those who get on board with peace— with what Jesus has in mind, there is something to look forward to. Let me argue on your team for a moment. Um, um, hang on. I am not sure that I'm going to be able to handle hearing you argue on my team. <laughs> so uh, I, <laughs> I, <laughs> this you, is a new experience. You put it so well, and the, let me emphasize. In other words, part of what is at stake and I, I have felt this too. I actually brought it up in our in our previous conversation, Matt and John. And that is that the danger I feel in, especially in Hart's approach to this, in a kind of dogmatic universalism, is the same danger that you get in infernalism. It is. And that is that all of the weight of salvation in this case, maybe not damnation, is put upon future categories. And what you are describing is that, well, the impetus of the New Testament and the weight of the Bible, the weight of what Christ has done, is within this world's categories. In other words, if it were not within the confines of creation that God is going to save us, then why the incarnation? Right. Hey, let's just skip the whole thing. Exactly. Uh, 
further, let's just you know further. So even if you do incarnation, and this is a piece that I I actually found myself getting pretty emotional about this uh, the other day. So let's say that you needed the incarnation, and so you had Jesus die on the cross, and and he took care of that. And I I feel like you have to run back to substitutionary atonement there, something like penal substitution. If it's all done over here. And it has no bearing on this. It, it needs no participation from me in, the, in this daily life. Then you really are running back to that. Further, there's all these calls. I, I mean, it, when you read Revelation the way I do, where it's a call to people to continue to suffer persecution and to remain faithful in persecution. Why? When you can look back to stories of families being eaten by lions in the in the first centuries of the church for sport uh, because they were Christian and saying, I refuse to recant my faith in Christ. We can go down stories after stories, thousands of years of martyrs who have given everything. And on some level, I myself, I can't put myself in that category. It's disrespectful too, but I can look at the things I know that I have given up because of this understanding of the gospel and what it's cost me. And Paul, I, I dare say it's cost you. Um, to, to then turn and say, that was needless suffering. You didn't have to go through that. Because the salvation is something else. The salvation, it happens after. To me, I, I feel like, I, I don't want to say slap in the face, because I don't think people mean it that way. But I think... It diminishes the sacrifices that people have made in their lives to follow Christ on the way of the cross, because the way of the cross is not necessary, because it's not about the way of the cross. But to me, that's different from saying, well, it's not fair for me to go for to do all this, and, and the people that should be in hell are now in heaven with me. That's not what I mean. Mm-hmm. If it's all about going to heaven, if, that's the, if that encapsulates salvation, then why are we still here? Why stay here? Let's just skip it. Right. If all of the weight of salvation is post-death, uh, well, let's just go right there. There should be no reason for us to suffer alongside Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, if we want to talk about universal, there's, there's different ways to use this language. I think a better way to talk about universalism is universal intent, but also to start talking about universalism as in the restoration of mm-hmm. the universe or, or uh, the cosmos of Romans 8. So, yeah, he is going to restore the whole world. Does that mean that every animal that's ever existed is going to be restored? No, I think he's going to restore animals. I think that the the world is waiting for a type of resurrection. Uh Yeah, there's universality there, and he wants to restore people. Uh That There's a representative. Yes, he restores all things, people, trees, fish, water, the universe. Sure. If you want to talk about universalism that way, I'm happy to, to think of it in those terms. That, I think, is also going to be foreign to, to most on a popular level. I'm agreeing with you here, but let me confound it even more. And that is that there is this aspect to it. And to drain the meaning out of incarnate work of us, right. the choice that we make. In other words, the incarnation 
continues in our incarnate continuation of recreation. Another way of describing this that is true to the early church, I think this is actually a Gregory of Nyssa that talks about that in Genesis, that the creation is an event. The first Adam is an event that continues and is completed in the second Adam. In other words, we, we may imagine that it is an entity that that all he finishes, and then on the sixth day that things are finished and he can rest up. But the idea, of course, is that, yes, but there is a continuation of the formation of these people who are created then to be image bearers. And the whole point of that creation then continued in Christ is to complete this image-bearing capacity that we are in some way co-participants in. It was a Greg Boyd message who first, he first introduced the idea to me, not personally, but the idea that the image of God is a reference to idolatry, right? That uh, an idol was an image, a stand-in for this God, and it was a participant of this God. So when you worshiped the image, you were worshiping the God. Well, we are the images of the one true God. That is our purpose. And so, yes, you're, I think, exactly right that as in the creation narrative, the symbolism of God sitting is then to say that now it's our responsibility to act as he acted and to live this life on this planet, living the way God lives in a physical world. He wanted a physical representation of what is in heaven. And here is our opportunity. And so we name what we name, we name it good, like God named it good. And we participate in creation, we care for creation. This is all tied up in our upcoming class as well, that our lives are meant to be lived here. We're supposed to be with our hands in the dirt. We're supposed to be in the waters. We're supposed to be here taking care of creatures and taking care of one another because it's a physical representation of the love of God that is in heaven. So that's the intent. The goal of the gospel is to restore it, all of it. Let me state it in a way, and I'll see if you agree with it, that in some way, just as in the cross of Christ, the eternity, that is, the eternality of who God is, intersects with time. And so, too, there is the sense that there are moments in time in which there is this intersection of eternality and time. In other words, I think this may be the, the mistake of the universalist, the, way to, the mistake of infernalists of a particular brand, that they're uh, picturing a kind of consecutive, oh, well, there's the creation event, and then there's the end of that, and then you got eternity. Mm -hmm. But actually what you have is that the weight of glory or the weight of its absence comes to bear upon a particular moment in time, a particular place. And I think this was the great insight of Bonhoeffer and his depiction of ethics. And his idea is that a real-world engagement of Christianity is very particular and specific 
to an, a real-world overcoming of evil. In other words, if you think if Bonhoeffer and Bart had just given themselves over to at least a liberal notion of universalism, they would have said, as you are saying, well, what's the point of that? This, right. uh, this Hitler guy is, uh, you know, he's not really that bad, and maybe think he's kind of cleaning up uh, Germany, you know, getting rid of some of this, these, the riffraff, these unwanted. And so in words, that, or even if you didn't think that, in words, you're just willing to not counter and deal with a real-world evil, because in the back of your mind, you may be thinking, well, the weight of this moment will be taken up care of elsewhere. Right. We need not deal with this evil at this moment because God is going to resolve all of these things at some other place, some other time, in some other sphere of reality. And therefore, we can always kind of be escapists and say, well, I... I know this is evil, but uh, what's a little evil among friends? You know, evil that is the means of, of creating greater good. So, and I'm afraid that's the great danger in a kind of sloppy, Hartian form of universalism, or maybe many of its forms. So I have a kind of theory on, because I, I used to do this illustration in my theology classes where I would describe how you get a Martin Luther from what he was experiencing in the Catholic Church at the time and why he goes to these extremes about faith and works and all this. And so I would stand on one side of the room as far to the side of the room as I could, like up against the wall and say, if he, if he saw the Catholic Church here or the Pope or things like purgatory, which we're kind of talking about again, right? As being over here, his natural response is to go all the way and walk all the way to the other side of the room and stand up against the other wall to try and get as far over here as he could. But what's there is you're really still operating on the same kind of assumptions. And I feel like what I'm seeing, and this is again, this is all kind of anecdotal, I suppose, but what I feel like I'm seeing is a lot of folks are responding to some really cheap fundamentalism some some really overbearing fundamentalism that's uh, kind of shallow and really is all about people going to hell and kind of needs people to go to hell forever and very distasteful of that and saying, so let's try to go to this other side of that and try to be the complete opposite. When in reality, it's still the same set of assumptions. And what I think is the failure, again, relies on that same atonement theology. I think it's because the idea of hell and living forever is so in hell is so hard to escape. I mean, it's just, it's just there. So even when you can get people started talking about, well, let's look at what Jesus came to do differently and what that means for now and, and future eschatology differently then yeah, yeah. Well, we like that. It's, it's different and it's about, it's about doing kingdom now, but still, we're so overwhelmed by this idea of people suffering in hell forever. We've got to figure out what to do with that. And so you end up, it just, I think it just captivates the imagination so much that it's hard for folks to escape from it. But I think if you're doing atonement right, then you don't wrestle. I don't wrestle with that question that much because I go plant the garden. Yeah, you plant the garden, you spend time with some children, you, you just do the kingdom. And, and that's not to say we don't worry about those things. It's still an important conversation. But our job is to live this kingdom. 
And we live it because we think we need to live this to participate in the resurrection. So that what we're really discussing is the character of Christianity. That is, is Christianity, when we talk about salvation, is it primarily concerned with a future tense salvation, whatever that might be, or is it in fact a practical, lived-out participation in the inauguration of an alternative kingdom begun in Christ, in which there's a real-world defeat of evil and a creation of an alternative kind of people from out of this then mixture of whatever it is that we have. So that it really is, and that's my kind of fear with the notion of a wrong emphasis here, that the whole point of a peaceable kingdom, the whole point of inaugurating or enacting practical salvation in a present tense moment, the impetus behind doing that is in some way relieved or that it uh, the weight of it is put elsewhere. And so you get a Christianity that can be more accommodating to the structures of the world as we have it and need not concern itself so much with the principalities and powers and the evils as we experience them. At the very least, it seems like it does only as kind of a side note. The way you said it is, it draws into question, what is it Jesus is doing? Is he coming to to die so that we have this future existence? Did he die for me so that I don't have to? Or did he die and say, come and die with me? Because participation in the kingdom requires the cross. Not just that Jesus does, but that we bear it too. Now, most of the folks I know who believe in universalism, or who at least are are thinking about this, are perfectly willing. I'm not trying to insult anybody. They're perfectly willing to pick up their cross. But if participation requires that we take that step on our own to say, yes, I will I will follow, then to me, that cannot square with the idea that God's going to sort of fix everybody to come into the kingdom apart from them saying, yes, I will come with you and participate in the creation in the kingdom. Are you saying, and this is just a pure question, that if it's post-mortem, then in some way the weight is shifted elsewhere. I mean, we're talking about things we don't know, but but that's another problem with universalism. <laughs> I think with that sort of that sort of purifying thing, God's going to purify people. Well, it seems like what what Jesus has called us to is look. When I go back to the martyrs, I'm saying these are people who said, "I will live this way. I will carry this cross in a world that is antithetical to it, that is hostile." to the message of the cross. I will not strike back my enemy. I will not live in fear. I will trust that God has something for me if I follow. I don't know how that happens post-mortem. How do you live in this evil world and carry the cross in an evil world if you're no longer in it? Yeah, and so let me state it another way. And that is the danger is that we will shift from a Christocentric understanding. This was my little blog I wrote about heart and my objection that has been an ongoing objection. He's putting it in terms of certainty, that we can have a certainty given 
creation ex nihilo and using those sorts of arguments. And my point was, yes, that what's happening is that certainty is folded into a different sort. We can talk about our certainty or our faith in Christ in a Hebrews 11 sense as a kind of certainty. But I'm afraid that a certainty, this was Luther's point about the theologians of glory, that they put the weight upon the seen things in creation. You know, he's really talking about scholasticism. Mm -hmm. He's talking about philosophical arguments. That there is a kind of abstraction, a kind of philosophical, formal first cause that one can put their trust in. But that's a very different sort of thing, a very different sort of bloodless kind of certainty. That the point of a non-Christocentric, but a kind of philosophical scholasticism that I'm afraid that Hart and many others are falling into, is to confuse two things and to conflate two forms of understanding and argumentation. That my understanding is that as Christians, and what it means to be Christocentric, whatever, whatever we make of the significance of those formal arguments, that's not the focus of the New Testament. And in this, I'm in agreement with Luther. You know, it's not that he contrasts or pits creation against cross, but what's happening in scholasticism is people are focused on creation. In other words, the problem is not that those two things can't be fit together, but the idea is that in Christ we have access to God. And I don't think that be due to sin and fallenness and just being finite. I don't know that we have access to God through any other means than Christ, and that means that our knowledge is, in fact, of an incarnate, finite, form of understanding that we can talk about a certainty, but that certainty is always a hopeful certainty. That is, it is from a human perspective. And what takes place in a philosophical argument is that we take a kind of God's eye point of view of things. And as with modernity, so too with scholasticism, there is a pronouncement of a kind of absolute certainty in which there is a neat package that's all worked out. But of course, the price of that packaging is that one has made a departure from what it means to be human and escape the bonds of the gravity of an earthbound understanding to imagine that they can tell us what the mind of God consists of. Right. It Exactly. That's a lot of hubris, but I think that that was the point of the article we were talking about earlier. One of the, his points is, you know, humanity's messy. And to talk so cleanly, I guess in my mind, that means resurrection is messy as well. The whole thing ends up being messy. So we're, we're reading Wendell Berry's book, Jaber Crow, in this upcoming class. And there's a moment in the book where Jaber's, you know, gone through his whole life. He's at the end of his life and he's He's reflecting on being in love with someone who was married to somebody else and how uh, her husband was unfaithful, but Jaber wouldn't tread on the, the sanctity of her marriage. And so he decides he's going to be faithful to her in his heart. 
And there's so much pain. He's been through so much. He's had all of these experiences learning about how to be a community of people that care for each other, that live in this world and care for this world and care for each other. What his part as a single man, as a, as a barber in this little town has looked like. So it's a masterpiece. But he gets to near the end and he stops and says, this is a book about heaven. And it always struck me that uh, the, the whole book is messy. It's sloppy. There's all these colorful characters. There's these strange people. There's drinking. There's carousing. There's all these, these things that happen. And in that moment, it always takes my breath away when he says, this is a book about heaven. Because there, I think, is a recognition that this is that restored life. This is messy and it's human and it, it doesn't always make a lot of sense and it doesn't always work out into these neat categories that we can express it and feel really good like we resolved everything. In fact, lots of things are unresolved. Jaber in the book is going to die without resolving lots of things. Um, some of the evil people that he wishes would have gotten what was coming to them. It never happens. So much is unresolved, but that's a book about heaven. It is eternity intersecting. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.